take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. If you want a starting point today, we're going to begin in Genesis 12, but move through several sections of Scripture here through the remainder of this first book in the Bible. So you want to keep your Bibles open and follow along with me as we move through this. Our focus is great stories from God's Word. Today, uh, from ordinary to extraordinary. The Bible is a progressive account of the revelation of God and His work in the world. A study of the major movements of the Bible, or the epics of time, or the eras of history as they unfold, help us understand who God is, what God has done, how we can know God, and how we can live for God. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the account of creation. Genesis 3 through 5 is the account of the fall when people sinned and disobeyed God and the consequences followed. Genesis 6 through 9 is the story of the worldwide flood and God's faithfulness to Noah and ultimately to humanity by sparing his family and repopulating the earth and giving his promise even in the midst of that. Genesis 10 and 11 tell the story of the Tower of Babel and also the Table of Nations. We're given insight into how the world was populated and how humanity spread out and how the nations began. The balance of the book from Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 50 is the story of the raising up of the nation of Israel and the people who were integral to that, the family members that God used in order to establish his family that would be a light to the nations. We will consider examples today from the lives of four men in Genesis. Each example, which is a biographical story, will teach us a lesson about the human experience with God and a truth about the character of God. It's important to preface this message by saying all of these men were ordinary people. They were sinners just as we are. They got off track from time to time and lost their focus. Yet God was faithful and he used ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. We need not fall into the trap of thinking that only these type of people can be used by God and we uh, elevate the examples in scripture so far above us that we think that somehow God can't use us. They were very ordinary people. In fact, the definition of ordinary means no special distinctive features or normal or common. So think about it this way. If you were to look in a dictionary and it said ordinary, you could put my photo right beside it and that would be the definition. And while you're laughing, you could also put your photo on the other side because that's what we are. We are ordinary people. But the definition of extraordinary is something that is very unusual or remarkable. Something that is extraordinary is great. And God specializes in taking the ordinary and doing an extraordinary work. The first example is from the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The lesson is that we are called to live by faith and follow God's purposes. Abraham's father, Terah, lived in a region of the world known as Ur. Ur was an important city in Mesopotamia on the Euphrates River, located about halfway between the Persian Gulf 
and modern-day Baghdad. So if you're looking for perspective of where they lived, that's where they were from. The people in that region worshipped in idolatry. They were caught up in the Babylonian pantheon of gods, and they were steeped in a pagan culture. It was in that context and from out of that context that God called this man as a very ordinary man to do extraordinary things in his life. We begin reading in Genesis chapter 12 in verse 1, and this is what the Word of God says. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There is an immediate and obvious contrast that we see when we move from Genesis chapter 11 to Genesis chapter 12, and here it is. Genesis 11 highlights the plans of man. Genesis 12 highlights the plans of God. God says, I will repeatedly in this section. God promises Abram a land, a nation, and a blessing. He was to leave his country and his relatives. The nation that would be raised up through him would be Israel. And Israel would be through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. And through him would be the light that would shine forth to all nations. And God was going to make not only his name great, but Abraham's name great. And he says here that whoever curses that nation, Israel, will be cursed. And whoever blesses that nation that he would raise up would also be blessed. Now, there are many promises in the Old Testament that are yet to be fulfilled among Israel. And just a plain, even surface-level reading of the Old Testament would show us and reveal to us that there are promises that have not yet been fulfilled. And I believe we have to be careful in our understanding of Israel as a geopolitical nation. We have to be careful not to make them the same as the nation that God raised up as his people. But we must also be careful to understand that the people who are the Jewish people who do not yet know the Messiah, they comprise the peoples that God has promised he will still bless before it's all said and done. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the preacher of old, wrote about some of the things that happened to people that persecuted the Jews. He said, when the Greeks overran Palestine and desecrated the altar in the Jewish temple, they were soon conquered by Rome. When Rome killed Paul and many others and destroyed Jerusalem under Titus, Rome soon fell. Spain was reduced to a fifth-rate nation after the Inquisition against the Jews. Poland fell after they persecuted the Jews. Hitler's Germany went down after the horrific anti-Semitism that they enacted. Britain lost her empire when she broke her faith with Israel. I do believe, whatever your perspective might be of the technicalities and particularities of these end-time events, that one of the reasons the United States has been blessed is because we were one of the first modern nations to grant full citizenship and protection to the Jewish people. 
we have continued to be a friend to the Jews, even though everyone around them would seek their destruction. And part of that's wrapped up in this message that God gave to this man called Abraham. Now in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the reason that all the nations of the earth would be blessed is because that they would know that Christ, the Messiah, is Savior and King over all. So there's a missionary vision here in Genesis 12. And there's a thread running through Genesis 12 that does not start in Genesis 12 or in there. It begins in Genesis 3 and verse 15, which is the first mention of the gospel. It runs through Genesis 12 and the covenant that God made with Abraham. It goes through Genesis 15 and 17 where that covenant is ratified. It goes all the way to the opening pages of the New Testament when God sent forth his son born of a virgin, born at just the right time. And it goes all the way through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and it goes through the end of time when all of God's promises will be fulfilled. And Abram's name, when he's first referenced as Abram, means exalted father. But Abraham means the father of many. Listen to how the Apostle Paul states it in Galatians 3 in verse 8 and 9. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. God calls us to listen to him when we encounter him. Abraham had to listen to the word of God. But not only did he listen to the word of God, he had to believe the word of God. And you can mark this down. There has never been, nor will there ever be, any other way to be saved than through faith. God called this man to believe him before the law was even given. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was believing in the promise of the Messiah. And now we have the luxury of being able to look back and see the finished work of Christ and also look forward and see what he's going to do in the future. And by faith, we believe the word of God. Paul wrote in Romans 4 and verse 3 and following, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. It is true that there was an old covenant, but the old covenant was pointing forward to the new covenant. And it was the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, that secured our salvation eternally. So there's only one covenant ultimately, and that is faith, believing in the Word of God. And then that faith leads us to do the will of God. And that's exactly what Abraham did. God calls us out of darkness and into light. He rescues us from lostness, and he saves us by faith. He directs our lives according to his purposes. So the lesson here is faith. The truth about God's character is that he always fulfills his purposes, faith and purposes. The second example is from the life of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. 
the lesson is that we are expected to follow in obedience and trust God's promises. Abraham and his wife Sarah got up into old age well beyond childbearing years, and they were childless, yet God promised them a son. Abraham doubted God, so he had a son with his maidservant, Hagar, and that son was named Ishmael, and nothing has been the same since. Abraham doubted God, and because he doubted God initially, he didn't do what God told him to do, but yet God was still faithful, and God still fulfilled the promise of a son in Isaac. Isaac is referred to in the scripture as a son of promise, and when the boy got up in age, God gave Abraham the, the command to sacrifice his son. He said, wait a minute, why would God, the God of life, do such a thing? Well, God was not tempting Abraham, but he was testing him to see if he would do what was right. Further, God was not condoning child sacrifice, which is absolutely horrific. God abhorred child sacrifice, and he gave commandments against it. But the point of the test was for Abraham to demonstrate complete obedience to God. The point of the test was so that Abraham would believe God once again and do what God told him to do and see the promise in the midst of it. So he tells Abraham to take Isaac and to go to the land of Moriah. And it would be there in the land of Moriah that he would offer up his son as a burnt offering on the mountain. Abraham obeyed God. He got up. He saddled his donkey and he took two young men as servants with him along with his son Isaac. They split wood in preparation for the burnt offering and they set out for Moriah. When they got to the base of the mountain, they left the two young men behind and, and Abraham said, the boy and I will go over there to worship. Then watch this, we will come back to you. Abraham was believing even in that moment even though God had told him to do something that seemed like the most extreme commandment of all, to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering, he was believing that somehow God was going to deliver on his promises and they would come back after they had worshipped. So they began up the mountain and Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And he arranged the wood and he put his son on the altar. And we pick up reading in Genesis 22 and verse 10. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. 
Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. There's a clear parallel between Isaac and Christ. Isaac, like Christ, was a promised son. Both births were miraculous. Isaac's, because his mother was past childbearing age, and Christ's, because his mother Mary was a virgin. Isaac and Christ were named before their birth by God. God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and God spared him in the end by providing a ram, a lamb in the thicket, as a substitute. God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the message here is one man's obedience as the father of that great nation, his willingness to do whatever God called him to do, God's provision of a sacrifice that was a foreshadowing of what was to come in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and the fulfillment of of God's promises that he made to rescue people from their sins, to provide a covering for our rebellion and sinfulness against God. Isaac obeyed his father, and in doing so, he too yielded to the will of God. Now, admittedly, the remainder of his life is filled with narratives without a lot of lessons, but his heart was one of obedience to God's will. He was deceived by his own son, but then even in that he accepted God's will, and then he died and he was buried with his sons. God demonstrated his faithfulness to keep his promises, and God will do the same in our lives as well. The lesson is obedience. The truth about God's promises is that he always keeps them. He's the promise-keeping God, and he can be trusted. The third example is from the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. The lesson is that we will encounter struggles and must depend on God's strength. Jacob's life began with a struggle. Even as an infant, when he was in his mother's womb. He jostled for position with his brother Esau. God told his mother that there were two nations in her womb who would become divided. One thing we know early on is that old Jacob was a mama's boy. And not only was he a mama's boy, he turned out pretty much to be a scoundrel and a deceiver, at least early on in his life. There's themes of deceit and favoritism. And if you can imagine this, there was actually family strife, but there's also a theme of reconciliation. After essentially stealing his brother's birthright, his inheritance, he decided to go and make peace with Esau and to go home. Jacob was on his way back to Canaan with his family after 20 years in Padan Aram, and he was scared. Now, here's why he was scared. His brother said earlier on he was going to kill him. And you better believe that if a man in those days said he was going to kill you, and he had the capacity to do it, your life very well could be in danger. So Jacob did what any bold man would do. He sent the women and the children out in front of him. And he hung back for a night. 
He thought, I got to prepare this thing and I'm going to send the women and the children. I'm going to send a gift to my brother Esau, but I'm going to hang here in the camp for the night before. And we pick up reading in Genesis 32 and verse 22. And the Bible says, during the night, Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two slave women and his 11 sons and crossed the ford at Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked Jacob. He replied, your name will no longer be Jacob. He said, it will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. Jacob spent the night alone. Likely, he spent the night in prayer. God got Jacob alone so that he could deal with him. You understand that it's easy to try to camouflage ourselves when we're in a crowd or even when we're among our family. But God often gets us alone so that he can deal with us. Because when God gets us alone, all the distractions of life and all of our selfishness, it fades and God comes front and center. And it's when we are alone that we have our undivided attention focused on God. Perhaps Jacob was thanking God or remembering his blessings or praying for help as he prepared to meet his brother. But this was a turning point in his life. I wonder if you've ever experienced a turning point where God has got you alone, when you've gotten away from the distractions of whatever it is that has drawn your attention and your affection away from God. And he's gotten you alone so that he could deal with you. And when he gets you alone to deal with you, you can experience in that moment the power of God because you know that he is doing something in you and it's a turning point. You see, salvation is a turning point. But I think for the believer, there are often more turning points in our lives where God is refining us and he's shaping us and he's molding us and he's teaching us to be more like Jesus. And this was a turning point in his life. And we have those moments where God meets with us. So what happened here was a man wrestled with Jacob until the break of day. God knew about Jacob's self-reliance. He knew about his scheming and God came to get a hold of him. Listen, friend, God will get a hold of you to get your attention. He will take you where you are, but he will not leave you there. And the figure here was no mere man. It was a theophany. It, it might have been a Christophany, meaning an earthly appearance of God himself in the, in the form of, of this man who appeared to Jacob. And I think about this kind of like a, an early version of, of an MMA match. There's a contest here where ultimately there's a submission hold, or maybe for 
you old wrestling fans, there was a figure four that ultimately came about here in this circumstance. Now, I don't know what that is. Somebody just told me early before the service. But I'm thinking that's what happened here, where there's this wrestling match, and, and God is going to do something in it. James Montgomery Boyce, the preacher, said, how did Jacob ever manage to keep up with this struggle throughout the entire night? He said, I do not know, but I do know that his determination to hang in there was no greater than our frequent determination to have our own way and to eventually win out over God. Now, God's the one who ultimately wins here because Jacob submits himself to the one who has appeared to him. And he knew that his wrestling or his effort to contend with God was about over, but he wanted a blessing. So God changes his name and he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And the changing of his name from Jacob to Israel was in keeping with the blessing that this line would have on the earth. Mark this down. What happened there by the river was the defeat of a man who submitted to the greatness of God. Have you ever wrestled with God? If you've known God very long at all, and you've desired to do his will, you have found yourself in circumstances where you have wrestled with him. Oh, we wrestle with God in the times of trials and testing, and we wonder why, and we're looking for direction, and we're looking for a way out, and we're looking for a blessing, and we're looking for an answer, and we're, we're wrestling with God. We wrestle with God, and we plead intensely with him, perhaps on the behalf of another person. We wrestle with God, and we come to recognize our own weakness. And here's the beauty of it. You would think that when you wrestle with God, and you see his strength, and you submit to his power, that that would be the place where your strength has ended, and indeed it is, but in reality, it's where your freedom and your life with God and the strength that keeps it up is found. There's freedom in wrestling with God, in coming to that place where you recognize that He is God and King over all because He cares enough to enter into the mess of your life, and we wrestle with Him, and we recognize our own weakness, and to be held in submission by our great God is a place of freedom where we can be prepared to do whatever God has for us to do. And so we come to the end of ourselves that God does His greatest work. The lesson is, we all encounter struggles in this life. And then the truth about God's character is that we must depend on his strength. Struggles and strength. The fourth example is from the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. And our focus will be in a brief passage of scripture there. Joseph was the beloved son of his father and was given the coat of many colors as an expression of his father's favor. And he had these dreams, and in these dreams, he saw himself in an exalted position in his family. Now, as you might imagine, if you were to wake up in the morning and tell your siblings about the dream that you had had and how you were exalted over them. There might be a little bit of family strife and a little bit of family jealousy. And certainly that was the case here. So his brothers, being jealous, plotted to kill him. Joseph's brother Reuben objected. So instead they hatched a plan to throw Joseph into a pit 
and they sold him to Ishmaelite traders. Imagine kind of the gypsies of those days where they would go from city to city and from settlement to settlement and they would have all these wares and these goods and they would sell them along the way and unfortunately the trafficking of human beings was one of the things that they bought and sold. So they, the brothers, threw Joseph into a pit and these traders come along, they take him with them and they hatch a plan to take this favored coat of many colors dip it in an animal's blood and go back to old dad and say, dad, the animals got him. That was the end of the story. And the Ishmaelite traders took Joseph down to Egypt. And it was in Egypt that he rose to a high rank serving Potiphar, who was a high ranking official under the Pharaoh. Now note this, please. We often think that our usefulness to God can only be when circumstances are ideal, when life is smooth, when things are breaking our way, when we're on an upward trend and life is good, that's when we're useful to God. But that's often the opposite of what we see in the scripture. That it's sometimes we're, we're at our lowest point. It's sometimes when it seems like things are the most hopeless It's sometimes in the moment where it seems like we're the furthest away from God that God still has his greatest work to do in us and he will raise us up in his faithfulness. And Joseph excelled at his duties and the reason that he excelled at those responsibilities and rose to a position of prominence was because God favored him. You understand the only way that we can truly prosper in spiritual matters, the only way that we can really make a difference in eternal matters is if God prospers us. Oh, we can have some momentary human success by our own strength and our own natural abilities, but we'll hit the wall at some point and our effectiveness to God will be greatly limited. But when God raises us up and he sees fit to use us and he favors us, that's when we're truly blessed. Joseph ran into trouble when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He rejected her advances She lied, and Joseph ended up in prison as a result of it for attempted rape. God gave him the ability to interpret dreams and brought him before the Pharaoh ultimately. A time of famine was coming upon the entire region. Because of the dreams that God gave to Joseph, he gave him the ability to tell Pharaoh that they needed to store up plenty of food in the time of plenty so that when it was a time of want, they would have enough to get by. And they were able to store up sufficient food supplies. And because of what Joseph did, he rose to a position that was second only to the Pharaoh in power. A famine set in and it greatly affected not only Egypt, but also Canaan, where Joseph's family still was, where he had been sold from. So the sons came down to Egypt, and through a series of events, Joseph realized who they were and what had happened, and he revealed himself to them as their brother. He was broken and shed tears in their presence. And then he said this in Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 18. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves, your servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. 
I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now let's zero in on this statement here in the middle of these verses. You meant evil against me, but God intended it for good. In the midst of difficulty, even when we do not understand, even when we're suffering, we can believe that we have a sovereign God. And while all circumstances certainly are not good, God can bring bad circumstances to the good on our behalf because he's got a greater purpose. You understand, we're myopic in our vision. We only see in the moment. We see snippets. We see little photographs along the way when God sees the entire panoramic view. And even when it seems like we're in the darkest place in our lives or we're in the most difficult circumstances and there's no way out and we're suffering perhaps as greatly as we have ever suffered, God is still sovereign. And that's why Paul would write in Romans 8 and verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. We have a sovereign God. And often when we are seeking deliverance and we think that circumstances have to be just right for us to ever be useful to God, God has permitted us to be in the very circumstance that we're in so that we can learn about him and we can bring him glory and we honor and worship him, not from a selfish perspective, but from an eternal one. Arthur and Ethel Tiley were pioneer missionaries to the Nambuquari peoples in Brazil in the first half of the 20th century. They made good progress in gaining the trust of the people and learning the language of the people who lived there, building relationships, sharing the love of Jesus with the people that they ministered among. Then in December of 1930, Arthur Tiley, along with baby Tiley, and a nurse who had gone to serve with them named Mildred Krantz, were killed by the very people that they had gone to serve. Mrs. Tiley was severely wounded, but by God's grace, she survived the attack. She wrote a letter back to the States only weeks after that this had taken place in the early part of January 1931. And she thanked everyone who had prayed for them. And she wrote this, we must believe that all happened according to the plan of an all-wise, loving, Heavenly Father, even to the smallest detail. I do not say we must understand, only believe. She went on to write about the events that had taken place, and she said, As I came back from the darkness of unconsciousness, to find myself not only without my own family, but to find my entire household gone, it was to know a father's care, so tender, so gentle, that even the intense loneliness of the first days separated were made sacred and hallowed. This kindly light that never fails made even those days luminous with his presence. And then she wrote this. I ask you to believe with me that no accident has happened, but only the working of our Father's will. To you who knew and loved Arthur, 
I beg you not to mourn the dead, but to rejoice with me that he has been called to a higher service. The lesson is about suffering. The truth is that God can be trusted because he is sovereign. Suffering and sovereignty. So I give you this statement and I close. Christians are an ordinary people following an extraordinary God. Christians are an ordinary people following an extraordinary God. Friends, it doesn't matter where you look in this book. All the great stories that we've considered and will consider together, one truth remains. God is always the hero. It's always God's glory. And it's our story of being privileged to be a part of it. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed once again by the truth of your word, the clarity of your character that comes through to us in it. We need you and we depend on you for all things. I pray that these lessons would be brought to bear in our lives and maybe one of them was of particular note to somebody here this morning. A struggle that they're dealing with and they need to know that you are God. You are on the throne. The universe is running right on time and you're faithful. I pray that our faith would be strengthened through these examples, these biographical sketches that we have just learned from. And Lord, we want you to be exalted in this church. Help us to yield ourselves to you in such a way that we find true freedom. We find true purpose. We rely on your promises. And we know your strength in every facet of our lives. So undergird us in that way, Lord. Help us. Help us, Lord, would be our cry. I pray if there are individuals here today that need to take specific steps of faith or responses of obedience, that today would be the day. Maybe somebody needs to stop wrestling and just say yes to Jesus. Come to the cross for forgiveness and life. And Lord, we know you'd be pleased with that and we would rejoice with the angels in heaven. So bless this time of invitation and response. We give the time of the conclusion of this service over to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.